Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, Frenita, good to see you. Good to see you too, Ned. How is everything? Holding up okay. You know, it's a stressful season. I mean, there is just so much going on. So much going on. But, you know, in normal circumstances, Election Day is pretty exciting for us uh, election law geeks. Uh, But, you know, it's it's tough going through this primary season in the midst of a global pandemic and with all the stuff going on with Black Lives Matter and you know, so we it's a it's a difficult time, but you know we we push on and we still do have to have serious conversations about how the primaries are um, being conducted and what it means for November. Um, and so, so one thing that came to mind as we um, sort of looked at what happened in Kentucky, and uh, we still are you know unresolved about many of the races in New York. Um, one thing that came to mind is: is this the new normal? Right, that was a question that I, I kept thinking of as I, I watched things unfold, particularly in Kentucky, um, where people were still waiting in line to vote for an hour or two, and you had, you know, candidates and, and going to the courts and trying to keep the polls open, and um, it just made me wonder: How should we think about this moment? Should we um, stop thinking about this in terms of, um, well, you know, we're just trying to do the best that we can in the midst of a pandemic, and actually entertain that maybe this is life going forward? Well, I hope it's not the new normal in the sense that, you know, four years from now, when hopefully the pandemic is well in the past and we have vaccines, uh, I hope we have a much different conversation about the voting process than we're having today. And if two hour long lines and machine breakdowns in Georgia and, you know, people not getting the absentee ballots they're entitled to is how we vote in 2024 and 20. 28, you know, we're, it's a pretty sad story for American democracy. Um, And I'm happy to have that conversation and try to crystal ball out that far. I I think this year can be thought of as unusual, um, largely because of COVID, but there are other factors at work. We've talked about impeachment and and never before having a president running for re-election, having had to be impeached and then acquitted and the John Bolton book coming back with more efforts on his part to try to use foreign powers like China to influence the election. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that 2020 is aberrational. I hope it's still successful despite being aberrational. But uh, so tell me a little bit more about what you mean by the new normal and what you're observing from Kentucky this week in Georgia you know, last week or two weeks ago now, um, and, uh, and how are you feeling about things? So I guess part of me wants to push you to kind of crystal ball it for a couple reasons, because um, one of my concerns about this being a new normal, so you're right that we are in sort of a once in a lifetime global pandemic. Once we get a vaccine, things will look very different, but I don't think I'm entirely sure that they will look different. Um, because think back to Shelby County. Right, Shelby County, you know, everyone had these horror stories about what the world will look like without uh, 
part of the Voting Rights Act that was invalidated in Shelby County and how states will engage in widespread discrimination and efforts to disenfranchise folks. Well, that actually came to pass, right? But what happened is that we just got used to it. You know, people sued to stop it. Um, sometimes they won, sometimes they lost. But it sort of became a new normal, this, you know, having people wait in line to vote for four hours and um, having fewer polling places and having states adopt voting ID, voter ID laws that were uh, way more restrictive and way more discriminatory than when Section 5 was in place. And so I think that's, you know, just so you understand my priors, why I'm, I'm worried about this being the new normal is because I think that our tendency is to just get used to it being hard to vote. So one thing I saw with Kentucky this week in particular was that um, some people were of the opinion that Kentucky was um, moderately successful in carrying out its primary because it wasn't as bad as Georgia, right? The, the Kentucky Secretary of State posted a picture of a polling place in, in Lexington, I believe, where there were no lines, right? But of course, by the end of the day, everyone saw sort of the video of the people waiting to vote in Louisville and sort of beating on the window trying to get in um, and the poll workers not allowing them in until they finally agreed with the court order, right? Um, and so, I mean, it, it paints a, a picture of two very different worlds, but it, my concern is that that latter picture of, you know, people beating on the, the windows to vote um, has become the new normal, right? And, and I worry that we'll just get used to it. Um, and then when we have things that fall just short of that, uh, where people are waiting in line for two hours instead of four, then all of a sudden that's a, a moderate success, right? And so, so that's what worries me. And I think that um, Kentucky was a cautionary tale in its own right, because I think we've become complacent this fast and sort of thinking that that's a good job, and it's really not. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're pushing me on this, but I, I'm going to push back a little bit. Um, I mean, I am thinking differently in my mind short term this year versus long term future, because I really want to get through this year successfully if we can, and I'm worried. So for me, Kentucky does look like a relative success. I don't want to say it was perfect. I don't want to say there weren't problems. And I agree the visuals, you know, were pretty ugly. But if we go if we go back to this idea that we started with in our first episode about do we have a standard for success versus failure? Is there an authentic result that reflects the will of the voters wanting to participate? Again, it's you know the dust hasn't settled. As you said, we don't have um, vote tallies, because Kentucky did something really interesting, which I want to come back to, which is that many of the localities are embargoing their returns from uh, election day results until they're finished counting all the absentee ballots. So, um, and that's an interesting idea as we see vote shifts, you know, can happen after election night because of more ballots being counted. But so we're still I think it's still too early for a definitive assessment, but whereas Georgia looked like an abject failure to me in terms of complete dysfunctionality to the point that it really wasn't an authentic election, uh, Kentucky, I think, could get a passing grade, even if not you know, an A grade or a good grade. Um, and in this year of COVID, I think, we have to at least hope that we can have something that passes for you know, the minimum standard of 
did we, the voters get the choice that they wanted to? Now, I don't want that to become a new normal. You know, if, if it turns out that waiting in line two hours has to be viewed as acceptable in a pandemic election because we just can't do better than that, I don't like it because I hold my, I think we should hold ourselves to no longer than one hour. Um, you know, I know the Bauer Ginsburg Commission's report after the long line problems in 2012 wanted there to be a national ambition of a half hour as the longest any voter would have to wait in line. Um, I'm willing to say that an hour is still constitutionally permissible. I'd prefer a half hour, but, but I agree with you. Let's not accept two hours as a, as a new normal. So I, I've heard a lot of that, the sense that we're just trying to get through the moment. I mean, we've had guests on our show, Rick Hassan, um, Nate Persley, and others who've made the point that in this moment of COVID, it should not be the time for us to try to fix the fundamentals of our election system. Um, but, and I'm sympathetic to that, but I do think that COVID has brought to light many of the inequities in our system, and it, it has exploited them um, in a way that kind of prevents us from getting a passing grade. Um, so, and that's, that's the hard thing for me. So I, I recognize the moment, but at the same time, had we tried to fix some of these issues earlier, I, I do think we would have had a better response. Um, I'm young enough to remember the guy who was the last person to vote in Texas at 1.30 in the morning, right? And, you know, we often point to those horror stories, not realizing that people standing in line for two hours is also bad. Right. But because we have those as our comparators, someone waiting in line for eight hours versus someone waiting in line for two, we become desensitized. And so I, you know, I just I have a difficult time with the argument that success should be defined by what's unnecessary. Right. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, was it necessary for Kentucky to go down to one polling place in some majority minority areas? I'm not sure that was necessary even with poll worker shortages. Um, and so it strikes me that if we're able to get a legitimate outcome out of Kentucky, despite the fact that K Kentucky went down to one poll in place in some areas, I still cannot paint that as a success, right? I can't, you know, to me, the, the process matters just as much as the outcome. Even if we can sort of look at the outcome with some level of certainty that the winner is the winner. Right. To me, the right to vote is personal. Right. It's not just instrumental in a sense of, you know, producing a, a, a legitimate winner. It's also about people, you know, vote for any number of reasons. Um, and we supposedly live in a system that privileges that. Yet we've been kind of moving along for the last seven years, um, comforted by the fact that we haven't had a rebellion or civil war because our elections have resulted in legitimate winners. Even when Trump won in 2016, at no point did I feel like there was a threat of civil war, right? Because he, he won the Electoral College. We understand that is how the president wins in our system. But to me, it's, that, that doesn't necessarily mean the 2016 election was a success, right? A, 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 far more people were disenfranchised in the election that they sh than they should have been. Um, and so, so I do think that we can have um, a broader conversation about why procedures should matter, even if we have a fair amount of confidence in the outcome. Yes, I mean, I think you and I um, have 
different frames and perspectives on this, uh, which is uh, okay, appropriate. It'll be interesting as these conversations evolve throughout the year, whether you know we move closer together or further apart, or we just stick with our frames. I think no matter what, I feel um, you know deeply enlightened by the conversations that we're having, and and even though I I do still feel like the reason we hold elections is to elect candidates. They, they are instrumental in that sense. I do worry about every individual voter having their uh, right to vote protected, but you know, I disaggregate that in my mind from the, the systemic question of collectively, does the electorate get the result that conforms to the collective will of the, of the sovereign people? Um, and so I'm I'm going to keep measuring at least one conception of success or failure by that instrumental value of elections because they're they're designed to produce office holders and I want legitimate office holders who derive their power from the consent of the government. Um, and there may be disenfranchisement that shouldn't have happened or blemishes, but if, if somebody is holding office as a result of the genuine collective will of the electorate, that counts in my mind as, as the system working according to that fundamental principle of consent of the governed. So, you know, I hope we continue to kind of push each other because, um, you know, uh, these are two very distinct frames of reference and I think they both have their value. Um, I do wonder if we're defining legitimate a little different though, Ned. Right. So you view legitimacy as someone who um, is a clear winner. Right. And, and I guess I'm questioning, legit, questioning the legitimacy of someone winning as a result of a flawed process. Right. So when you talk about I think we are in agreement that when the process is designed to elect candidates, we're also in agreement that these candidates are the result of um, or are really tasked with trying to represent the collective will of the people. And my, I guess my argument is that the procedure is what determines whether or not it's truly the collective will of the people, right? If you have right, um, undermined the process, then how is that an accurate gauge of the collective will? Yeah, I mean, I've come back to an example that I think you and I have talked about before. Um, you know, I think there was significantly bad disenfranchisement in 2012 which is what prompted President Obama to need to form the Bauer-Ginsburg Commission. And I think he was right to form the commission because that disenfranchisement was intolerable and showed that we were underperforming according to the commitment of our values of equal opportunity. And that was pre-Shelby County. And, and it's right to try to improve the system and to figure out what, why aren't we living up to our professed ideals. But I still think it is imperative to be able to say at the same time that there should not be any asterisk by President Obama's name to cast any doubt on the validity of his victory in 2012. It was a fully authentic win representing the collective will of the voters pursuant to the electoral college system that we have. Um, despite the disenfranchisement that hurt individuals improperly as part of that particular November election in 2012. Um, 
and I because I don't think it's fair to President Obama or to any winning candidate of that nature who wins who does genuinely represent the collective will of the electorate despite problems that occurred with long lines or you know improper voter purges or what other things that shouldn't exist but sometimes do exist uh, and I think we have to be able to distinguish a situation in which there is that authentic result versus ones in which there may not be. And one of the reasons why I think the Georgia election of 2018 has cast a big cloud over our national conversation on this topic is Stacey Abrams and you know her group um, has a view about her loss in 2018 in that gubernatorial election where they have some messaging where they put, you know, Governor Kemp with an asterisk as if he's not really entitled to the full legitimacy of the office in the way that President Obama, I'm saying, is legitimate. And I think that's, you know, I respect people's differences of opinion, but I think that is, a, on my own analysis, a misunderstanding of the 2018 Georgia election. I, I think the degree of of problems that happened in Georgia in 2018 were much more grievous than nationally 2012. I mean, I think there was genuine malevolence on Kemp's part in trying to suppress the vote. Um, and so that has to be called out as a kind of uh, anti-small D democratic practice that is really pernicious in a way that long lines can be caused by bad administration that isn't quite as malevolent. It is bad because it's disenfranchisement, but there was a degree of intentional disenfranchisement in Georgia in 2018 that was just horrendous. So let's call it out. But I still think we need to acknowledge that if the degree of disenfranchisement is not outcome determinative, you know, he's entitled to hold the office of governor without an asterisk next to his name in the same way that President Obama is entitled to hold the office of president without a similar asterisk. So, so that's why I think we need to be able to disaggregate, you know, this question of do we have an authentic winner versus was there wrongful disenfranchisement that we definitely should try to stop. I just think that they are, they, they go together, you know, I think, but I don't. So here's my struggle yet. I think that the question of whether or not, so maybe I do agree that they should be disaggregated, but I think for different reasons. Um, at the end of the day, if we settle on a winner, we should still be thinking about that wrongful disenfranchisement beyond though, just calling it out. Um, because one thing about the Georgia election that, you know, Would Governor Kemp probably still would have won? Probably, right? But that doesn't erase the fact that there was a lot of things going on in that election that undermined the ability of people to participate or either raise the stakes of participation such that people couldn't participate. So functionally what that means is that there were votes that were never cast, that would have been cast, but for his behavior. And because you can't get back votes that were never cast, we have no way of knowing how many people stayed home, right? And so it just seems to me unfair for him to get all of the benefits of saying he's a legitimate winner when he engaged in explicit actions to keep people from casting ballots. 
such that we will never ever really know, right? We're, we're making an assumption. Now I'm not, because we'll never know, um, the rhetoric on both sides is dangerous, but it seems to me that, you know, for the sake of democracy, we make certain assumptions, regardless if they're true or not, without sort of acknowledging that we're making an assumption. We are assuming that he's a legitimate winner based on votes cast while acknowledging that he engaged in wrongdoing, excuse me, wrongdoing during the election that, uh, that likely affected the ability of people to cast the ballot. It seems, I don't know, it just, to me, that just incentivizes people to be bad actors when it's framed that way. Yeah, no, I think you're asking the right question. Um, and I'm certainly willing to entertain as best we can kind of the factual analysis of whether the impropriety caused the kind of disenfranchisement that you identify that would um, suggest that he doesn't deserve to hold the office. Because I do think, you know, I, I do think we should be prepared to delegitimate. Oh, to be clear, I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve to hold office. I'm saying that we don't know, right? And it's in, but we ignore it. We ignore that, um, we ignore the fact that we don't know, right? We just sort of look at the outcome and we move forward. Um, and because we frame it that way as, okay, well, he's a legitimate winner because he got the most votes. Um, nothing happens to him with respect to the actions that he engaged in in 2018 in affecting the election outcome, right? Because we're so focused on the outcome. As long as we have the ability to declare someone a winner, we are okay with moving on to the, ne the next elections in two years, right? Or the next gubernatorial election in four years. And I think for me, that's the problem, right? And that's why we can't have this sort of single-minded focus on the legitimacy of the outcome when there are so many things going on that actually taints the outcome. And the people who are doing the tainting are not suffering any repercussions from that. And they are incentivized to cheat because we always move on. So I don't, I mean, I'm not, that doesn't necessarily lead me to conclude that he should have an asterisk by his name or that we should call into question the legitimacy of his election. But yeah, it, it needs to be part of the conversation, right? It needs, there needs to be some acknowledgement of the fact that what he did had real world effects on the ability of people to cast a ballot. Even if we don't know how many people I, I suspect that most people will agree that it affected some people, right? In a way that that should matter, you know, as opposed to just saying, well, he won, we're moving on. So this is a really important point, I think. I completely agree that just because you have a result isn't enough. And I'm really worried for this November, you know, we're going to have a, a tally at the end of the day or at the end of the process and that tally is going to favor one candidate and so they're going to say wait it's over i won here are the numbers the numbers are only as good in my mind as their genuine authenticity is reflecting the will of the electorate so i do not think we can stop at just the numbers and i think our system has to be prepared to invalidate a result if the numbers are a sham meaning that they don't really correspond to the genuine will of the electorate. And that can be because of voter suppression and disenfranchisement. So I, I you know, going into G Georgia 2018, I was fully prepared to say, if I thought that the evidence supported it, that a court should, you know, declare the result invalid and either you know, require a revote or figure out some other solution, but you can't let somebody take office 
based on a vote tally that is produced through wrongful disenfranchisement, particularly wrongful disenfranchisement procured by a candidate running for office who's secretary of state at the time and trying to manipulate the process to his own advantage. So, but, and while I thought that was a real risk, I thought at the end, his margin of victory reflected enough votes you know, genuinely cast for him, you know, that it, that it was more than the degree of reprehensible disenfranchisement that he committed. Now, I know you're saying that there is also this cloud of uncertainty that maybe there were voters who kind of gave up and didn't try to vote because just the atmosphere of voter suppression was demoralizing and discouraging. You know, for me, that's a hard thing. I mean, I think I think we do have to ultimately decide it was a legitimate win or, or it can't be proved to be an illegitimate win. And I worry about casting a cloud over an office holder if the opposing candidate can't prove the degree of disenfranchisement necessary to delegitimate the victory. I think if you, if you can't show it, you have to allow the office holder to hold office without that asterisk and try to fix the system you know, for the future. I just don't understand why we're acting like there isn't a solution to this. There is, right? So the perniciousness of voter suppression is the fact that people stay home. That's why suppression, right? People are suppressed. <laughs> and so you never really know how many people stay home. You never have a sense. That's why it's successful. That's why it's hard to police, right? Because voter suppression is, is premised on the idea of people staying home. And as I mentioned before, you cannot count ballots that were never cast. Um, and so because of that, it's hard to police, but that does, not mean, that does not mean that there's no solution to this. The solution is that we should have a system in which it's easier to vote. And states should only be allowed to adopt those regulations that are necessary, and they should have to prove it and defend it in court. That is the solution. The Secretary of State should not be the referee in his own election, right? That is a solution. Yet we, we have the system. We allow people in power to suppress the vote. And then we tell people, sorry, you know, the margin of victory was bigger, right? And I'm just, I don't know, it just makes me uncomfortable because there are clear, there are, and I'm not saying that that will fix everything. Right. If 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 history is any lesson, they political parties evolve. Right. <laughs> um, they always figure out a way to get around things. But it, it's I'll, it's always amazing to me how we create these legal fictions that allow states and political parties to engage in this behavior, and then we put the onus on the voter or the candidate to try to prove wrongful disenfranchisement. Um, the, the probably the, the clearest example to me is the um, specter of voter fraud. Right. So every election law expert in the country knows that voter fraud is not really a thing. Yes, it happens occasionally, but for it to dictate so much of our political discourse, for so many states to enact voter ID laws under the guise of police and voter fraud, we all know that it's not really a thing. Um, yet the Supreme Court has found that states have an interest in ensuring the integrity of their elections, right? And they can do so even if there is a perception of fraud. Um, even though this cuts against the ability of people to cast a ballot if they don't have the documentation, right? How many people are sitting at home without proper documentation? In some of the voter ID uh, litigation, we've gotten a sense of that. It could be in the tens of thousands. Um, but that's, the, the point is that's far more 
than any cases of voter fraud that we see. And so I just find it really interesting that the, you know, the thumb has been placed on, on you know, in favor of state power um, to the detriment of the voters, despite all evidence to the contrary. And then what we do is we proceed as if there aren't solutions to this problem. Um, when we're operating in a framework that implicitly favors the state and not even implicitly, explicitly. Um, and so that, that's always a struggle for me because, yeah, when we talk about legitimacy and we prioritize sort of um, having candidates who are chosen from a process that is um, itself legitimate and, ha and having an outcome that is also legitimate, um, we sort of ignore that we're, we're operating in this framework in which we have all of these things that, that just simply make no sense. Um, and then we just, we just move on. <laughs> and because we move on, um, nothing ever gets resolved. It's like, this is the, the only democracy in the world, small D, because we're certainly not a big D democracy anymore, <laughs> where we just limp to the finish line every election cycle. Well, I, I completely agree that we need to improve our voting processes in the direction of making voting easy, easier. Voting should not be hard. No. Um, and, and, and I also believe there are, you know, partisanship pathologies in our system right now that are causing state legislatures to make voting harder than it needs to be for reasons similar to gerrymandering. The, 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 the incumbent politicians want to write the rules to protect themselves and their own partisan and incumbency interests and not design systems that benefit the electorate as a whole. And you know, and that's a real pathology, and you're, we're kind of stuck in, it's getting worse, not better. So that, that, that worries me. Um, but I do think, I do think there is a range of reasonable good faith opinions and disagreements on exactly how to design the, a, a sensible voter ID regime that um, is appropriately access oriented, but has some sense. I mean, I agree with you that in-person voter fraud is, you know, infinitesimal. Um, I do think, for, to be honest, you know, there's not a lot of absentee voter fraud either, but there is more of that. Uh, and, and I think some reasonable concern about that is, is warranted. But, but that discussion should be in good faith designed by trying in a uh, in a, a sensible way, in a nonpartisan way, uh, or bipartisan way, to try to get a system that works for all voters, so everybody has a genuine choice. And and yet, the pathology is that's not what politicians do. They say, "How do I write the rules to give my team maximum advantage?" So, um, you know, we've got a lot, a lot of work to do. Um, but I think that going back to this concept of voter suppression and versus disenfranchisement and the I mean I, I again I think there is this perniciousness where uh, politicians say if I can discourage the opposition from turning out that's to my advantage so even if I don't technically disenfranchise them I just make them you know not make them or get them to stay home you know that low, that suppresses suppresses turnout for their side. I win, and they think that's ethical behavior or at least acceptable behavior in the game of politics. I mean, I think that's disgusting. On the other hand, I, I think we still have to distinguish between 
disenfranchisement that is an absolute barrier like felon disenfranchisement where it exists, where you literally cannot vote because of a felony conviction versus um, voter suppressive um, behaviors that again are, are reprehensible, but they are not actually disenfranchising in that the voter could overcome them. It is more of a burden, it's not a good system, but it, the voter could actually um, could cast a ballot. And I think we've, we have to be able to distinguish those two. Otherwise, going back to again an earlier conversation, we've got all, you know, rhetoric, you know, swift boat ads like in 2004 can turn people off. Russia can get people not to vote for Hillary and, and stay home or vote for Jill Stein. I mean, there's a lot of voter suppression out there, and there will be, um, but not all of it is disenfranchisement. But the Constitution says abridge or deny, right? It doesn't have to be like absolute disenfranchisement. You know, I think we should be more concerned about even abridgment, and we should we should have a meaningful conversation about what abridgment means. Um, and so often we look for wrongful wrongful denial and. Um, I also think another thing, it's interesting how your point about looking for um, a regime of a voter ID law that uh, sort of serves both purposes, right? It sort of provides access, but at the same time allows the state to police its elections. And even then, sort of the terms of the debate have changed where we've gotten to a point where we're like, what's a, a great voter ID law that works for everyone? As opposed to questioning whether or not we need a voter ID law in the first place, because remember, a lot of the proliferation of voter ID laws in the last ten years has been for partisan reasons. And so, but I, but I do I just don't even the terms of the debate bother me, right? Because we're still borrowing um, language from you know one side or the other who are invested in a particular outcome that and it's and it's an outcome that's not voter oriented. Right. And so I would even, you know, caution us to think about how we talk about these issues and not sort of borrow frameworks from um, the entities who are not invested in the voters that are, and are simply invested in winning elections. Um, but that being said, uh, I do think we have to ask the question of we've to give some context. We've had six or seven primaries at this point uh, in the midst of the coronavirus. What have we learned? Right. I have to I have to ask this question because I feel like every time we talk about, you know, these primaries and, you know, we a lot of them have had the same problems. Um, and, you know, Wisconsin to me has still by far been the worst. Right. Like <laughs> Georgia was bad, too. Um, and in fact, the fact that Georgia was so bad shows that we didn't really learn much from Wisconsin. Right. Um, so so how do we go into November? where we don't seem to be internalizing any of the lessons from these primaries. They should be getting subsequently better, not worse. So what have we learned? How can we fix it? What is the meaning of life, Ned? <laughs> um, well, that I do want to get to that question um, and because we should be focused on preparing for November. But I, can I come back to say one more thing about voter ID? Yeah, sure. Or, um, I tried to sneak in the last word to cut. Yes, yeah. I did that. <laughs> well, so way back in 2006, I did a blog post trying to come up with a compromise middle ground position that gained no traction, but I'd like to just run it by you. And the, the concept, and it, it would have required an, an amendment to the 
National Voter Registration Act, the Motor Voter Law, because um, the, the, the thought idea was for all those people out there who want photo IDs at the polls, I said, well, why, why that? What if we had people supply you know, a cell phone photograph at time of registration? You know, this was even back in 2006, we we're starting to, you know, they get cell phones. And even if you didn't have a cell phone, you could go to a library or, you know, a Department of Motor Vehicle or wherever. And, but it, and if so somebody took your photograph at time of registration, it could then be in the system. And then the poll worker at the polls, either an electronic poll book or a printout of it, they'd have the picture. So you wouldn't have to bring anything to the polls. So let's rethink the whole concept of voter ID. The ID that you bring is your face, yourself, and it's our, and so if you forget, and, and that's, yes, there still would be the burden of having them take your photo at time of registration, but that's not a do or die moment. You, you have all year to register, lots of different ways you know, to do it. Whereas you know, voting on election day, you know, if you don't have your ID at that moment, you're in trouble. Um, you know, like the nature of any compromise, you know, it's not exactly what one side prefers or the other side, but it seemed to me it was a possible middle ground win-win. It gives the, the ID folks the photo that they want, and it gives the access folks the fact that you don't have to bring a piece of paper with you on election day that could potentially be a barrier. Um, there was no political will because both sides wanted to fundraise off of the the fact that the other side is so awful. Right. Um, uh, you know, I think, and our politics has only gotten worse in terms of polarization and antagonism. Um, and I'm not saying that this one idea was, you know, the greatest thing, but the but it, it shows to me that we can't even have a conversation to try to see if there are middle ground solutions. I don't know if you want to react. Well, to I, we... I will say that your solution does strike me as more reasonable than some of the voter ID variations that, we, that we've seen in from states in recent years. You know, Texas <laughs> probably being the primary example of a very restrictive. Um, but, um, and it also, you know, gets past some of the concerns we have with voter ID laws in the first place, right? The, the fact that people might not have the underlying identification or, I'm sorry, documents in order to get the identification, right? So. Um, it does seem like a reasonable compromise. Um, now, of course, it doesn't address my core concern about a state adopting a voter ID law in the first place without proving the existence of fraud, if that's their justification for adopting it. But because the burden is, is relatively slight, I think that it's a reasonable compromise, right? To the extent that we still endorse this notion that there is that the state has an interest in pre preventing the perception of fraud. Um, I think it, it strikes me as way more reasonable than what a lot of states have now. Um, but I think you're right. You know, the political parties aren't really interested uh, in reasonable compromise and reasonable solutions. And um, to that end, I think um, some of the stuff around independent commissions and, and voter initiatives and referendums and like th this, this is why all of those things have become so important because we are seeing a lot of movement there because the parties are not being responsive. And so it makes me wonder if we should organize and try to get that on the ballot somewhere. Uh, we might we might have greater luck with it there than trying to convince elected officials to to take up the mantle. I totally um, agree with that. Um, I like it though. You should republish it. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> well, I I actually think it relates to your question about 
you know, how do we get ready for November? Because my biggest fear is partisan acrimony is going to make us fail. Oh, yeah. and, and the inability to compromise. I mean, we're seeing this in Congress right now. The states desperately need more money uh, for poll worker training and recruitment and to ramp up the amount of vote by mail that's going to be needed. And they, they have gridlock because the Democrats don't want the money going out the door without some strings attached. And the Republicans don't like those strings and they can't get to yes. And uh, and we've I think the reason why Wisconsin was the big failure, we talked about that on a previous episode, was just the raw partisan rancor between yeah. the two sides. So, you know what what makes me more optimistic and not perfection about Kentucky, and I also noticed this in a law that North Carolina passed. There are a couple of examples of states trying to get past the partisan divide. And I was frankly surprised that North Carolina was able to do it because that's a state that has been really toxic. Right. Um, and in the nature of compromises, I saw, you know, again, there was people on, you know, the, on both sides that were a little disgruntled. But, but if, if North Carolina ends up more successful than Wisconsin or Michigan, it'll be because they figured out some way to get past the toxicity where they'd been previously. Um, but I, so to me, that's, I mean, and we've lost so much time since March and April. Yeah, I mean, we've been I beating a drum on this. Yeah, I am, I don't know that we're going to be able to pull this off, unfortunately. No, we're going to blow it. We are. Um, and so the question is, well, if we blow it, what happens? When we blow it, what happens? <laughs> what happens is we'll have an election, right? And th this is the, the amazing thing about our country, honestly, um, for a lot of people will, their right to vote will be abridged or denied come November, um, but we'll have an election. And honestly, the only thing I can hope for is uh, sort of the point you've been making over a few episodes now, right? The, the fact that I, I hope that the legitimacy of the election is not called into question because the turnout will be so high that we have a clear winner. That is what I'm hoping for. That doesn't mean we won't blow it. That doesn't mean that voters won't be negatively affected. That don't. That doesn't mean that after the election there won't be cause to fix it again. There will be, because there always is. We will blow this, but I'm just hoping that turnout will be so epic that we don't have sort of that crisis of you know legitimacy that accompanies close elections in times of high political polarization. And so that's my hope. And, mm -hmm. I, and, you know, I think um, Josh Douglas of Kentucky is the one who always talks about the, the poll workers prayer. <laughs> 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 and, and I think they probably have a similar prayer at this point because the money's probably not forthcoming. Um, you know, Congress allocated 400 million when it needed to probably be a billion or two. Right. And um, so the prayer at this point is just that that turnout be so high that we have a clear winner. Yeah, no, I share. I share that, um, you know, and, and we will definitely be around to assess what, what we see. Um, you know, one thing, I know we need to come up to the end of this episode, but at the very beginning, you put out this idea of, you know, are we in the new normal? And what I'd like to do is, if it makes sense to you, is save for a future episode pursuing a different uh, component of that, because, you know, 
you and I both like to think about history. And, you know, I, I think America had a long period in the Gilded Age politics where politics was very ugly for yeah. a long period of time before the progressive era. Um, and, you know, at the beginning of that bad phase, they didn't know yet whether or not that they were in the new normal. And it was a bad new normal for a long period of time. Um, and so there is a danger that uh, even without COVID, that the kind of partisanship that we're talking about becomes the new normal. And so, uh, you know, that the, the, the gerrymandering gets accepted. And again, manipulation of rules is just how you play the game such that we kind of lose a, a really decent conception of democracy. I mean, I hope not, but, but there is that, that danger. I also think maybe that, you know, this is so bad this year in terms of how brazen you know, some of the rhetoric is about, we have to have rules that allow my side to win. And if it, the rules aren't designed so that I can be reelected, they're not good rules. I mean, that's just outrageous, <laughs> but it's open. But maybe, maybe we recoil from that. And if we can get past this very bad place that we're in, we actually do find our way back to this concept that voting rules should be designed for voters, not incumbents. And so maybe it's a different new normal. So I, know. I think in, in past times, a big difference is that the court was willing to become involved. Um, and Pat, and, and let me be clear, the last, you know, prior to 2013, I would say the last 50 years prior to that, whereas there was a period, um, it's, especially during the Gilded Age, where the court sort of abdicated its duty to police the right to vote and to stop the disenfranchisement of African-Americans. And I mean, there were some successes periodically, um, but for the most part, it wasn't until the 1960s that, you know, African-Americans were able to emerge from this really dark period in which they didn't really have many political rights. Um, so it's entirely possible when you think about history that way that this new normal could last, you know, it could be a couple years, it could be 10 years, it could be 20 years, it could be a century, right? Um, and, and that's terrifying to think about, but at the end of the day, I'm staying hopeful because I do think that there are enough people in this country that care about democracy generally and they like being able to claim the mantle of democracy um and there are way more avenues open now to challenging some of the anti-democratic elements in our society believe and i'm saying that despite the supreme court's decision in the partisan gerrymandering case right um i think state courts i do think the initiative process some states have independent commissions right you know state state constitutions like there there are people are starting to realize that there are ways to fight this I think in a way that it wasn't necessarily true before where we look to the Supreme Court to fix everything. Um, and so the new normal might be bad in the sense of we are dealing with more anti-democratic elements, but it also might be good in the sense that it's forcing us to be more creative in how we engage in protecting our rights. And that's always a good thing. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Hey, can I say one more thing about comparing Kentucky and Georgia before we close out? Sure, I'll give you the final word. Well, no, 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 um, you can, push back at me if you want. Uh, and that is, I do think we should spend some time, you know, both us as the podcast, but collectively the election community trying to get ready for November, figuring out how to make more states in November look more like 
Kentucky than Georgia or Wisconsin. Even though Kentucky wasn't perfect, and I don't want to accept it as a new normal, I think it is you know, a reasonably prudent um, way to think about it in order to make it not, I, I think we should still try to make the best of the situation that we can, uh, recognizing that you know, the time is running really short and we may not be able to pull it off. But I'd rather have more states in November look like Kentucky than either Georgia or Wisconsin. And I think there are still some moves that can be made at the state and local level that increase the likelihood of that. And I, I don't think that we should lose sight of that point. And, I, and so I think every effort to push us in the right direction is still time well spent and, and thought uh, well, well spent as well. So um, two points. One, because I know you're too modest to say this, but you, in conjunction with Ohio State, have actually been very proactive in trying to prepare the election law community for November. And so we owe you a tremendous debt. You know, the conversations that you have coordinated have really forced many of us in the community to, to think more closely about these issues if the election in November is close. So thank you for that. Um, and then I guess my second point is, I just have a hard time holding Kentucky up as any ideal. Um, just by saying that it, it was better than Georgia, I think we can do much better. Um, I think we could do better than we did in Kentucky, you know, and um, it's just some of the images out of Kentucky yesterday really struck me as a low point. Um, maybe not as low as I felt when I was looking at the images out of Georgia, but still low. Um, and I would at least like to get to neutral for November. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I need to be like over the moon, but yeah, I need to be okay. I want to be okay. <laughs> and that is not too much to ask if we are truly a democracy. All right. All right, that should be the last word. Let's leave it yes, there. I'll leave it there. Great. Well, good to see you as always, and I'm looking forward to next time. Till next time. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Eric French at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Trinita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.